1: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: Good evening, children of the night. Get settled in. We've got some scary stories for you in just a bit. First thing is that for the next couple of weeks, you'll hear some voices other than mine at this point in the show. I mentioned to you in the past that I really wanted to make myself as replaceable as possible. When our founder, Larry, passed, it caught me by surprise, and we nearly wrapped up the show then and there. Recently, a close family friend passed from pancreatic cancer, and the widow asked me to read her eulogy for her husband— as she feels she wouldn't be able to make it all the way through without being overly emotional. To be honest with you, I think that when that time comes, I'll not be able to get through it myself. Larry's passing was sad, and so was this one, and in my heart, they're all the same loss, and that feeling just gets compounded with everyone that we lose. Meanwhile, here at Tales to Terrify, you'll hear from Drew, Seth, and Scott as they take their turn at hosting the show— so for when that day comes, when I'm no longer the host, hopefully by choice instead of surprise, either of those three will know what goes into it. I've been trying to get a better idea of how they do their job and how we've changed the workflow to be more efficient since back when this was literally a one-man show for the same reasons. Second, I think that I express some apprehension about the new movie based on Stephen King's It. If I remember right, I was critical of the need for another movie, and skeptical that someone could do as good or better than Tim Curry as Pennywise. Well, this week I saw the new It, and I found It to be a terrific and solid movie. Finn Wolfhard of Stranger Things plays Richie, and sometimes it's a bit hard not to see Mike Wheeler, but that's just me. I have to admit, typically I hate the job done by child actors, but this one... They'll give some adults a run for their money. Sophia Lillis as Beverly Marsh. Terrific job. And, of course, Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise. He doesn't try to do Tim Curry's Clown, but something else, and it works. The film does remind me of all the best parts of the original TV miniseries. It also reminds me of Stand By Me, and this one is a bit of a deeper cut. The made-for-TV movie, Sometimes They Come Back. It has that... Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes quality, where the long summers of childhood are inherently magical and alien from the world of adults. Oh, I I nearly forgot to mention, speaking of adults, my favorite part about this new edition of It is, yeah, there is a murderous supernatural clown creature that terrifies the children of Derry, Maine, but he constitutes maybe half of the horrors of the Losers Club faces. Each one of their parents damage them even further. Go see it. Let me know what you think. Gmail at gmail.com Time for some more scary stories. Our first one comes to us from Ross. Ross is a Screen Actors Guild-eligible veteran of more than 80 entertainment industry employers. He has been writing since he was a child and script writing in his teens for an amateur film company in Sacramento, California, led to productions of Ross's stage scripts by several Central California theaters, He has also published short stories in Cover of Darkness and The Druid's Egg. Ross works as a writer, director, acting coach, and actor for several theaters. He attended nine institutions of higher learning, primarily studying writing and theater. Listen with me to Ross's When the Road Calls.
1: I crossed a continent, an ocean, and an island. And now that I stood at last within the unthinkably ancient ring of stones reared by my forgotten forebearers, all I heard in the well of my own soul was the echo of the well cover when I drew it back. I hitched up my pack, struck my crude walking stick against the wet grass, and headed for the little local museum. Stepping inside I found I could proceed no further. The Avbury Museum was manned by an elderly gentleman in a dark blue suit. His white hair neatly slicked back, his face arranged in an expression of professional hospitality. He was attempting to elucidate the exhibits for an American couple. Since my fellow Americans blocked the way, I could do nothing but pull off my mist-dampened slouch cap and wait. Looming over the English curator, the elderly American demanded through loose lips, What's so special about this place, huh? Well, smiled the curator, Avebury is the largest stone circle in the world. Saw it. Is this the whole town? The modern town of Avebury sits entirely within the ring of... What's the museum for? The American angrily shook England's October chill from his Hawaiian shirt. His voice dripped with contempt that the country's temperature did not fit his tourist's uniform. The curator replied patiently. We house a small collection of artifacts discovered. Out thrust the American's finger. What's this? I'm glad you noticed that display. This? It's a rock. We have rocks at home. We don't build museums for them. Do you have anything good? Before the curator could indicate his prized display, the tourist declared, I've seen it. The ugly American turned back and shoved past me out the door. His wife were more alike at his side. The curator turned his eyes on me, propped up his smile, and nodded in greeting. I admired his resilience, something I had long lost. Is there anything I can help you with? he asked, glancing over my army surplus ski jacket, weathered jeans, and rough shoes. I took off my glasses and polished the mist from them. Not trusting contact lenses on a rough trip, I wore an old-fashioned pair of sturdy black frames. I had stopped shaving the day I quit my job, and it suddenly occurred to me that I had not seen another bearded man since I had arrived on the island, as if I needed an appearance guarantee to distance me further from those around me. But I was not thinking of appearances when I withdrew my savings, tossed a few things in an old army backpack, and flew away over the great Californian desert. "'across the wide states and over the rough Atlantic, "'reversing the course of my westward-driven forebearers. "'Embarrassed at seeing myself through the curator's eyes, "'I was about to demur, "'but considering the brush-off the man had just received, "'I changed my mind, saying, "'Actually, yes, I'm particularly interested "'in the excavation of the West Kennet Long Barrow.' "'The curator's smile became genuine.' and he swiftly ushered me to a series of photographs of neatly stacked finger bones and skulls within the long barrow. The more questions I asked, the happier my white-haired acquaintance became. Consequently, it took me three hours to complete my examination of the small room's treasures. We had long since introduced ourselves. Eventually, the curator apologized for keeping me so long. I assured him that it was I who had taken his time, and that I was delighted... "'and grateful for the information. "'I pulled out a small wad of bills "'to poke in the museum's donation box. "'The curator caught the tiny hesitation "'as I swiftly calculated "'how much I could afford to put in. "'He asked, "'You've been to a number of archaeological sites?' "'I had scarcely talked to anyone in weeks "'and was in no mood for confidences, "'but my countrymen had been coarse "'and this man kind. "'I affirmed, I have many more to see before I return. You're not exactly an archaeologist, are you? asked the curator, subtly eyeing my travel-worn clothing. But you're hardly a doss either. You seem well-read on my favorite subject. I'm not trying to discover something for science, just for myself. I wanted to walk the hills my ancestor walked. My journal pressed uncomfortably against my chest. I adjusted it and the man glimpsed the small, black-covered volume. Perhaps he thought it was a Bible as he asked, "'Are you a spiritual person?' "'I prefer not to define myself,' I said uncomfortably. "'Yes, but are you? Are you on some sort of pilgrimage?' Awkwardly, I pieced together what answer I could, though it's not easy to explain to a stranger that you feel derailed." that your locomotive is on the grade, spinning iron wheels in gravel, that a lifelong dedication and a quarter century of work seemed like maybe they had some weight in your hand and then vanished without a trace. But I let him know that I felt a need to stand where my ancestors left their bones. The curator absorbed this with a crisp, unmoved English smile. You were in the sanctuary earlier, weren't you? "'he asked, referring to an ancient structure "'once connected by a stone causeway to the Aftberry Ring. "'I was a little surprised. "'Yes, I meditated there a while. "'People will do that occasionally. "'Not much goes on here without we all knowing about it pretty quickly.' "'He eyed me. "'Are you staying in the area?' "'I replied carefully. "'I want to spend several days here. "'There's a lot to see.' it was pretty early when you were in the sanctuary. Yes, I have a limited amount of time and money and a long way to go. There seemed no point in not admitting the financial pressure he had clearly deduced. Are you staying under a bush somewhere? he asked lightly. Pardon me? Though amused, his smile was friendly. You don't have a car, and you were at the sanctuary before the first bus into town. You must have slept nearby last night, but you're not staying with anyone. I'm uh, I'm I'm trying to find, he interrupted smoothly. You know, the nights here do get rough. I've I've managed so far. There's a bit of weather coming in, and if you're sleeping under a hedge somewhere it could be unpleasant. "'We do have a hotel, of course, but if that is out of the question, "'you are welcome to sleep in... "'Well, I'm just a little bit hesitant because...' "'He took a deeper breath, knit his brows a trifle, "'and peered into my eyes, asking, "'You aren't bothered by dead people, are you?' "'I can't say I ever have been,' I replied, "'but I'm not really sure what you're asking.' You would be welcome to stay in the church, he told me. If the weather gets bad, it's only that it's an old church, you understand? I'm not sure I do. There are people interred inside, you know, that won't won't bother you? Not at all. It's just that a church is, well, it's there to help people, not just people of the same faith. It's warm and dry and never locked. No one will be there on a weekday evening. The rector comes in at six in the morning. If he should find you there, just tell him I said it would be all right. We can't have any old Doss sleeping there, you understand, but you'll be welcome. Seeing that I did not know what to say, he added, It's there if you need it. Then he shook my hand and went out to tend to other business, as did I. I searched the spectacular stone circle, perhaps secretly expecting to find my lost self around every corner. The contrast was striking. In the middle of my life I found an end, while my unwritten forebears had banded together in such numbers and with such inspiration that they had raised this vast ring of standing stones. Each monolith was huge, more massive than the trilithons of Stonehenge. The ditch surrounding the ring, even half filled by millennia of erosion, was still deep and steep. What had moved the ancients to mark out this vast ritual space, so large that not only the chieftains who had attended the ceremonies at the more famous Stonehenge, but an entire people could meet for a mass communal ritual, a sharing of the same experience, the same emotions on a grand scale, Walking along what remains of the megalith-lined causeway, connecting the vast stone ring to the long barrow, I sought some echo of the spiritual bond that had, so long ago, inspired men and women, armed only with antler picks and reindeer shoulder blades for spades to heap up an artificial hill called Silbury, raising it from the flat ground like the monumental green breast of their beloved earth mother. There it stood, a thousand generations later, and what had I built? A castle of sand? The causeway ended at West Kennet Long Barrow, a sort of turfed-over tunnel that once served as a burial chamber. Several tall, flattish boulders once sealed the mouth of the structure, but the National Trust had set these stones back a pace or two from the entrance so I could actually duck into the dry-stoned interior as the incoming storm began to break. Struck by the din of rain sheeting down, I looked up at the low ceiling and found that the trusts had installed thick, glass-brick skylights in the stone roofs to light my way. I crouched my way down the long passage. I knew that the ancients exposed their dead to scavenger birds in lonely places set aside for the purpose, as other forebearers of mine in the Americas were still doing over a century or so ago. Unlike the Native Americans, however, once the bones of the ancient Britons had been picked clean— They were collected, and their skulls and index fingers were stored here in the long barrow to keep the spirits of the dead close. I thought of Ezekiel preaching to the dry bones and bidding them live again. Perhaps in a place of ancient wholeness, I too might find renewal. My emptiness being curable by no rational means, perhaps the irrational, could help me. I burned the rest of the day's dim light photographing the ancient complex as best I could in the worsening weather. By nightfall, the storm was harsh. Well-wetted from my day's excursions, I could not face sleeping again tucked under a hedge in a water-resistant sleeping bag wrapped in a tarp. The Atbury Church seemed larger in the dark. The big, point-arched door was unlocked as promised, and passing in I found sanctuary indeed after the cold whipping walk back up the causeway and into the great circle. Feeling my way through near complete darkness to the rear of the pews, I found an empty place on the stone floor, laid out my sleeping bag, and prepared for bed. Stone is not a good mattress, and a wild British storm is no calming lullaby, but long walks and a yawning cavern in the soul make it possible to still the mind until consciousness sinks beneath the waves and eventually I floated into other realities. I woke with a jolt. Someone was there with me, or sort of a someone. I sensed an awareness without form or substance. I could no more describe this feeling to one who has never had it than I could describe sound to one born deaf, but whatever sense it was that had seized my attention, I felt that presence as clearly as I felt the stone beneath my body. There was nothing to see, no sound really, though I was vaguely aware that the storm still swept and pattered at the church walls. I had been trained to believe that such things did not occur, yet there the presence was, still focused on me as I was on it. It wanted me out of there. Its antipathy was inexplicable, tremendous, and growing in intensity. It wanted me out out into the night, out into the storm, out and as far away as possible. I had little idea what to do. There was no question of convincing myself that it was not there or of getting back to sleep. A roaring man would have been easier to ignore and less upsetting. Perhaps whether or not I could make sense of it, I could treat the presence like a person. Talking seemed unnatural in that dead quiet yet I might, in a sense, press my own feelings back against the alien presence pushing at me. I concentrated, projected my reasoning. Yes, you make me feel awful. Yes, you fill me with dread. But I'm not going out in that storm. Look, if you are some discarnate person interred here, you must have been here since the Middle Ages— "'no one's been buried in a chapel floor since then. "'I'm here for one night. "'I'll be gone with the dawn, never to return.' "'The hostility swirled about me, "'worse than before, incredibly unpleasant. "'I mean no disrespect,' I insisted, "'but I need shelter, and I was offered it. "'Look, I don't know if I can ever afford "'to come back to this country, "'but I do know I can't afford to get sick. "'I am not going out in the storm.' the more reasonable i became the more the disembodied outrage swelled i felt besieged by a spiritual storm as buffeting as the weather outside stop pressuring me stop with the vibes already i won't go out tonight storm or no i don't like being pushed physically or otherwise leave me alone let me sleep it's been a long, hard trip, Damn it! and stone floors are uncomfortable enough without you getting in my head. Get out yourself, get out of my space, and get back in your crypt. The pressure became almost physical. I found myself leaning against it. This was too much. A friend and teacher had given me an ancient symbol of wholeness cast in polished pewter she had taught me its history and symbolism and how to meditate upon it in times of trouble to still the mind while holding unwanted influences at bay usually meaning one's own bad memories destructive thoughts or pressure from actual living people i had never expected to use this meditative discipline to protect myself from the hostile awareness of someone who had died 600 years before but it was time to muster whatever defense i could Though I carried little with me on this quest, I had brought this little symbol across the sea. I groped in the dark for the pocket of my backpack within easy reach. The symbol was not there. I had put my glasses in the same pocket, and the symbol had been there then. It must be near at hand. I patted my palm about the floor and bedding, blindly searching, finding nothing but stone and cloth. I could accept the existence of a ghostly presence sooner than this disappearance of a familiar object. I refused to admit to any trepidation, but fear began to seep into the fringes of my consciousness. My hand found the edge of the rolled jacket that served as my pillow, slid underneath to feel about. Nothing. Where could it be? I had to have it. It was my only defense. The more I concentrated on finding the symbol, the less I concentrated on pushing back the hostile presence, the more my fear began to rise. I picked up the coat and shook it, expecting to hear the pewter expelled from some fold to clink against the stone floor. Nothing. Instead, the pressure of the unseen entity swelled to such unimaginable power that I actually felt as if great hands reached underneath the edge of the sleeping bag. It started to lift me up and push me back. My heart pounded. Adrenaline shot through my system. My limbs flung themselves out to the sides, trying to hold on to the stone floor. I awoke, disconcerted. I had felt so awake already. No dream in my life had ever felt so conscious as this. None had allowed me to think so clearly, and none had ever so completely reflected my waking experience because there I was in the pitch-black church, now wide awake, and there was the same presence I had felt in my dream, still wanting me out, out and away, gone for good. The same pressure was there, but no longer overwhelming, no longer physical. While I had been unknowingly asleep, the force had grown stronger, the less I focused on holding it at bay. Now that I exercised the full power of my conscious mind, The pressure exerted by the hostile entity was greatly weakened. I groped for my pack, found the pocket, and pulled the symbol from its resting place. I ran my thumb across the smooth metal, feeling its shape, picturing the symbol in my mind. Doing so held the hostile presence at bay. There was no escape from its relentless pressure, and it prevented me from sleeping. But it could do no more. I lay for hours in the utter dark cramped on the hard stone, picturing the symbol and pushing the entity to the edge of my awareness. At last I felt the change when the night invisibly but palpably shifted toward day. With the change in the air, the presence faded, and at last I could drift into exhausted sleep. When the light filtered in from the high windows, I woke Quickly packing my few belongings, I saw on the floor, not three feet from me, a human outline, a flat effigy inset in the stone. So many feet had shuffled over it that the brass had been worn smooth. All that remained was the featureless metal silhouette of a knight. I caught the bus and traveled onward, filling my empty eyes with new sights of old things. But in my dreams, each night, I dreaded the return of the hostile entity And when sometimes it did return, I felt terrible waves of raw fear, a horror of, I knew not what. Dread wore on me. I had to understand this experience and to bring it to some resolution. There was a woman I had loved and lost. Not that Nicole had ever loved me, except, I believe, as a friend. What I had lost when she left the States was the joyful agony of seeing her face by candlelight over the occasional dinner, while hearing her stories of her vibrant Italian kin. As her replies to my letters grew less frequent, I realized that even that last insubstantial literary contact was fading into absolute absence. On my long bus ride north to Erie, I reached out one last time. "'wrote to her of Avebury, and posted the letter at the next stop. "'I passed through Wales and stopped for a night "'at my brother-in-law's house below Hadrian's Wall, "'intending to go on from there into Scotland for another week "'before returning to London for the flight home. "'Brother-in-law John had taken his family to visit relatives in Texas, "'but had left me a key and, to my surprise, "'a letter forwarded from my parents' address in California.' The name on the return address struck a pang through me. I tore open the envelope. Nicole, perhaps because my tale was so odd, had replied. She gave me a London contact number for one Reverend Sam Stock. Owen, she wrote, I want you to talk to this man. He deals with things that you and I were taught to believe cannot be, but are anyway. Nature is so inconsiderate that way. Sam is a good guy. He was trained by the Berkeley Psychic Institute. Don't worry, they aren't all like those telephone psychics with bad accents you see on late-night commercials. I trust Sam because he helped me. When my plane was flying to London, I had a sense of coming home, even though I have never been here before, and a sense of mis-ease at the same time. As soon as I set foot on English soil, I felt an awful pain in my back. I thought for a moment I had been hit by something, but I hadn't. It wouldn't go away, and it was hard to even walk. It went on for days until Sam came to London to visit Bob and me, and I told him about it. Sam told me that in a past life I had been an outdoorsy English squire. I was crippled in a fall from a horse, and could never deal with the fact that I had been thrown after priding myself on my skill as a sportsman. Returning to England a lifetime or two later brought it all back in the form of physical symptoms. Sam had me concentrate on accepting that kind of blow to my pride, and I felt the pain lifting. After a few minutes, I was fine, and I've had no problems since. It's too bad you can't come see some shows with us, but our schedules just wouldn't mesh. Reverend Stock met me at dusk outside the empty church in the great circle of Avebury. I'm not sure what I expected, but it wasn't this man. Stock was blonde, bland of face and build. His eyes never seemed to focus on anything around him, because he was always focused on things just past the surface, things I could not see. We introduced ourselves, and he cracked crude jokes and laughed at them, establishing his credentials as a normal guy in all things but his specialty. "'Shall we go in?' he asked. "'I nodded, opened the wide church doors, "'and led the way into the deep gloom. "'We made our way carefully to the spot where I had lain. "'The brass silhouette of the night was barely visible "'as the last light receded behind heavy November clouds. "'Sam did not produce a flashlight. "'That made sense, I supposed, "'as there was really nothing to see.' "'Sam spoke calmly of relaxing.' We sat on the stone floor and let the darkness deepen, keeping our minds clear. I do not know how long we sat there, Sam exercising his psychic disciplines, whatever they may have been, and me drifting into semi-dreams, then starting back to normal consciousness, trying to empty my mind, and drifting again. Then the Presence was there, pressing at me, trying to drive me away with wave after wave of palpable hostility. Sam spoke to it quietly, asking, Why are you here? The reverend sat very still, drawing in some response. That's not it, he said. Look deeper. I winced as a wave of horror hit me, suffused me. Terror shook me, body and soul. Images flashed through my mind. A village in a grassy hollow, remote, isolated from the larger world, steeped in ancient ritual. A knight in dully, gleaming armor restrained his restive warhorse, looking down on the village. Lances bobbed and weaved on either side of him, and distant glints of steel flashed here and there on the hills beyond the village. The settlement was surrounded. The nameless knight watched a man in long robes, his care face stretched thin with sorrow and fear trudge out from the village to stand before an incredibly broad, stocky knight on an irritable charger. I could not make out the actual words, but I understood that this stocky commander's troops had been sent by some distant religious authority to enforce conformity to their sect. The long-faced man tried to explain that the villagers' creed joined them in spirit with the land on which they dwelt, and which they regarded as a living thing joined them with the life-giving waters that flowed through the land, with the animals dwelling on it, with the birds of the sky, the fish in the rivers, the trees, the crops. All was conjoined. The long-faced man explained that these people could no more betray their way of life than they could condemn a beloved spouse to destruction alone at the hands of his enemies. The whole village had met in council. They understood what the invading church meant to do to any who resisted, but the village had decided as one that it would be better to die as one with the land rather than to eke out a spiritless survival as serfs to those who betrayed the trust of ages. The stocky commander was unconcerned. He let the old man walk all the way back to the village. The stocky man calmly drank a stoop of wine, then tossed the flag to his page and sent him behind the lines. The commander flung up his metal-sheathed hand, and all hell was loosed. The knights rode down any they found in the streets. They spitted men and women while the foot soldiers tore down doors and slaughtered cattle. The nameless knight whose trampled silhouette still lay on the floor of the Avebury Chapel, killed busily with the other men, and as their own unopposed violence drove them to frenzy, as if searching for an act so awful it would force the doomed villagers to fight back. The nameless knight let slip all bounds. A small child ran through the streets, heart pounding, breath catching, running blind. Steel clattered behind him. Torchlight flamed. A huge, steam-breathed horse cut off his path. Terror jangling every nerve, the boy darted through an open door into an abandoned home. Coals and dying flames in the hearth cast wavering light on an empty bed. The boy dived under it, huddled against the waddled wall, looking back the way he had come. From under the bed, he saw a knight dismount outside the doorway, the whipping torchlight unable to reach the face within the open visor. The boy saw the great, metal-case feet tread heavily through the doorway, across the room, straight to the bed. The straw and wood covering was heaved up and away across the room leaving the child curling exposed in the corner the jointed metal gauntlet reached down from the towering figure, seized a thin arm yanked the child up and flung him to the floor one iron boot came down on a small shoulder pinning him the great gauntlet flexed its metal joints reached to the knight's belt and drew a dagger the knight knelt faceless in the wavering light, aiming the dagger point at the boy's belly. My limbs quivered and jerked as wave after wave of horror crashed through me, a tidal wave of terror and dismay so sweeping that I was screaming without inhibition. Shockingly bright after-image colors flared in my eyes, and the village was gone. I was back in the church with Sam. I was not cut open, not a child, not screaming, only shivering a little in the dark. Sam was talking calmly with the presence, the nameless night. It was one thing, Sam was saying, to get caught up in the collective madness. It was something else to live with it, isn't that right? There was a pause while Sam listened, and I gasped, willing my hammering heart to slow. Unseen in the dark, Sam addressed the night again. Your leaders told you that you were absolved from any crime you committed against unbelievers. But you knew better. That night haunted you all your life, especially the face of the screaming boy. Then you died. And you knew where damned souls go. You didn't dare pass on, did you? You stayed here, stuck in the floor of the Avebury Church, hiding from judgment behind other people's piety. A wave of hostile energy buffeted me. An image appeared in my mind's eye of a death's head of a dull gray metal like a helmet on a vast armored figure, hooded and cloaked. Get out of my head, I muttered angrily. Sam told the knight, stop that. We're not interested in any death imagery you can throw at us. I've had worse, believe me. I won't give in, I told the presence. I didn't give in then. I'm not a child anymore, and no violence, no oppression, no cruelty has ever made me conform. I won't get out. You see that child's face in me? As long as you and I are in this world, you'll see it still. Face me. I can face you. Sam spoke to me this time. He's stuck. Time isn't the same for him, but still, he's been here too long. He's a weak character or he never would have done those things. He can't go on unless you give him the power to do it. What do you mean? I asked. If you forgive him, his hold on this plane will weaken, and scared or not, he'll eventually lose his grip and move on to face the consequences of what he's done. Forgive him? I repeated, incredulous. Or you cannot forgive him, said Sam dispassionately. And you'll stay stuck here as the centuries go by. I took a breath. You pitiful monster, I said. Six hundred years is long enough to be stuck in a church floor. You wasted one life being weak and vicious. The only way you'll ever redeem yourself is to live again. It's not up to me to even the score. It's up to you. I forgive you. Go on to your next life and do better. The dread eased. There were no more ugly images, no pressure to leave. The sense of a presence dwindled. He was not yet gone, but his hold had been weakened. He receded to absorb what had happened. After a moment, Sam said, He's still afraid to go on. He knows he hasn't paid all his dues yet. You're the only person on this plane he can contact. The only connection he has with you is terror. So it may be pretty unpleasant, but you can comfort yourself with the knowledge that sooner or later he'll slip away. We might as well go, too. We groped our way to the doors and slipped out into the night. Sam shook my hand. "'That's really all I can do for you,' he said. I thanked him. He gave me his card, adding, "'Sometimes I give classes. Look me up sometime when you get back to California.' or forget the whole thing, if you'd rather. Thanks again. Give my love to Nicole. Sam hesitated just an instant, just enough that I knew he was aware of my doomed love and that he would not be passing on any expressions of affection when he spoke to Nicole. I nodded, and he walked off to his hotel room while I hiked out to my hedge. My time, health, and traveling money gave out at once. To get to the airport, I had to borrow a few pounds that good old John had left at his house for me. Back in the States, the last of my American money bought me a bus ticket to my parents' house on the western coast. I could sleep on their library daybed until I found another job. They welcomed me back, not sure what to make of the gaunt, exhausted relic of their son. The day after my arrival, the phone rang. It was Ambrose Douglas, an actor with whom I had once worked. He told me, I'm working at the Robert Semper Theater, and I told him, you'd be perfect for this part. It's not much money, but it's a good role and a good company. It's a start, I said. So if that time comes to you, if you hear the road call your name because you feel that, if only, you can drive far enough, There's somewhere you will arrive. I can tell you, so you will. When you're lost at sea, remember, if there's no way to keep your foundation solid rock, there's no sea either without shores.
3: That was Ross's When the Road Calls, as read by Matthew Staton. Matthew Staton lives in Chicago and spends his time recording and mixing bands, playing guitar in his own band, and arguing with Rancid the Cat. He would love to narrate books or podcasts for you. Contact him at Head at gmail.com. Thank you, Matthew. Next up comes to us from Lena Henriksen, who lives in the cold, dark depths of Denmark, where it rains a lot, except when it drizzles. Her work has appeared in, among others, the unlikely Cholerophobia Remix, Jersey Devil Press, and Freeze Frame Fiction. It is now time for Lena Henriksen's Fishing, a Tales to Terrify original.
4: "'I caught the first one on an evening in November "'and put it in a glass jar. "'It unfolded in the water like a wraith of blood-red ink and swam. "'Oh, fuck! It looks just like—' "'And I would have been able to concentrate on what was being said "'if it hadn't been for the small, stiff hair on my chin, "'escaping my every attempt at catching it between two fingernails.' A. listened to that which I could not hear, and back in the car he said, "'It's probably not as bad as it sounds,' though I had no idea what it had sounded like at all. I longed, no, yearned, for a pair of bloody tweezers. We were home again, and I could hear A. unpacking the groceries. He was in the land of kitchens and hallways, where jackets hang from coat-racks.' and flat-screen telly-stroke about the weather from well-lit living-rooms, and he shouted through the closed-bathroom door that we'd forgotten to buy milk, and that he'd go out and get some, OK? And I shouted back from the land of white tiles and mirrors, sticky toilet-seats, and the steady drip, drip, drip of leaky taps that, OK, you do that, and some wine too, please while digging the tweezers' sharp metal tongs deeper still, catching the hair, yanking it out triumphantly as the front door slammed and... There was no pain, no relief. I looked in the mirror and saw that it was still there, the hair, only now it was longer. I could wrap it around my finger quite easily. One time, two times, three times... And so I pulled it again, more gently, wrapping it tighter and tighter still, four times, five times, six times, until finally the pain. But not as I'd expected. Something burst deep within my skull, like a tiny glass orb, showering the back of my eyes with burning splinters, releasing warm streams to run down my throat. "'into my chest, through my stomach, "'pulsing with every beat of my panicked heart as I fell. "'Maybe it was a plug, like in a bathtub, "'and now they're all out. "'Oh, fuck, what if there's more? "'It looks just like a—' "'Something was moving, feebly, red against the white tiles. "'I watched it as I was lying on the bathroom floor. "'It looked like a small drop of blood.' "'twinkling and writhing. "'I raised my finger, "'lifting the long string of hair to my eyes. "'The blood, the fins, the tail, "'it looked just like... "'A fish, a tiny fish,' A said. "'Oh, fuck!' "'They looked just like fish, "'small creatures that fold and unfold in water,' Shifting their fins, moving like blots of ink, changing before my very eyes. Some have tentacles, like minuscule squids. Others have shark-tails or the elegant poise of sea-horses. They bow, they bend, in the blink of an eye or the bulging of a gill. They become something else entirely. I watch them sitting on my bed. Their homes line the shelves along the wall, dull sunbeams reflecting in glass that used to contain pesto, tomato sauce, marmalade and cream cheese. In the dark, the stars and the moon shine through curtains, illuminating the slow somersaults of a blood shrimp, turning into a veiled tail before nibbling the surface of the water as the coil of an eel. I caught them all, they break through my skin with every hair I wrap around my finger, pulling out glistening scales and black eyes. At night I dream of red seas, full of dark pits where creatures larger than continents move, rumbling through skull-crushing depths, and things with countless legs and hard shells crawl over rippled seabeds and tiny dots of light. Were like glowing galaxies in the lines of my fingertips. Traces of the dreams linger during the day, the inside of my skin and skull wet with their imprints, and they'll rise again at the next tide, waiting patiently for the tug of the moon. Nothing appears on the scans. Bleedings like these sometimes disappear on their own. No help needed, says A., He has yet again been listening to that which I could not hear, staring blankly at the ceiling and scratching my chin as I was, and so I agree with him, and I'm sure they're right. The tiny sphere of blood inside my brain has gone, but only because it's already burst, the blood it was holding, the creatures it contained, streaming through my veins, moving to the rhythm of churning guts, and creaking bones. The tide is getting higher still. I watched a glass jar on the shelves, and I want to tell A to take good care of them all when I drown.
3: That was Lena Henriksen's Fishing, a Tales to Terrify original as read by K. G. Cross. K.G. Cross is 30 years old and works in freelance, including as a professional audiobook narrator. She has a long background in theater and books, as well as being an educated librarian. She has six years' experience in narration, and you can find her page at kgcross.net. Thank you, KG. That will be our show for the evening, children of the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors, Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Leitze, and theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.
1: This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for
0: listening.